Well, let's turn to the Word of God this morning. I'm, uh, I'm excited to continue in our series and continue talking about some of the ideas around uh, what, what we're kind of focusing on this year of 2023, and, and specifically this concept of being intentional to celebrate this 100th year anniversary of the founding of our church. So I just announced that we have a guest speaker coming, and that's the first of several events we have planned. And, and this series I'm, I'm doing intentionally right now, leading up to when uh, Reverend Clay will be here, because I want us to have a, a proper framework and a proper understanding of why we're doing what, what we are doing. So I, I talked in our very first week of this series uh, from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, that our lives as individuals and as a corporate body even, they're, they're made up of times and seasons, right? And, and we saw how all of the things in our life come from the hand of God. And they, they, these times and seasons, they're sometimes great, and they're the things that we want them to be, and sometimes they're difficult, and things we, we don't necessarily choose on our own if we had the ability to, but, but we don't, right? And so it's God who's, who's ordering, ordaining, then leading us through these different things. And so what we said was, since this is true, and this is what the Bible teaches about God's sovereignty, is you and I as humans, we, we experience this life. And we need to learn then to glorify God in the midst of everything that we walk through, right? To, to step back and try to say, I'm going to control my whole life and I'm going to order my times and my season. I'm going to pick what I want. It's not going to work, right? You don't have that ability. You don't have that power. You're going to be very, very frustrated if you spend your whole life thinking, my goal in life is to choose my times and seasons and the things I have and don't have. Rather, the Bible says, we ought to remember we are creatures, recognize he is the sovereign God, and learn to glorify him and trust him in the situations he leads us through. And so this morning, we're going we're to kind of focus in on the corporate side of things. And we're going to consider the, the if and the why we should acknowledge and practice a season of celebration as a church body in something like this anniversary year, especially with the awareness that not everything in our individual lives will always be great and glorious and happy and joyful in the midst of a year like this, right? We've already suffered heartache and sorrow in these last several weeks, and, and more likely than not, we'll experience more of that this year. So, so why, if that's true of our individual experiences, should we say as a corporate body, we're still going to try to mark this year and make it a celebratory, joyous one? That's what I want us to see this morning. The title of my message this morning is Living with the Light. Living with the Light. So to start, I, I want us to turn to a chapter of the Bible that's not typically on the uh, most popular places to do your devotional list. Uh, even if you've grown up in church, if you have your Bible, you can flip over to Leviticus. Leviticus, and we're going to start in chapter 23. Um, Pam's like, I've just been reading Leviticus. We were talking about this yesterday, and she was like, yes. she was finding it fascinating and not boring at all. That's not true of all of you. I get it. But if you have, so if you have your Bible, turn to Leviticus real quick, and just Pam and I will be really excited about it this morning. <laughs> We're going to take just one, one um, start of Leviticus 23, and then we'll go to 25 here in a few minutes. Leviticus 23, chapters 1 and 2 says that, or verses 1 and 2 says this, Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of Yahweh that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. Now, as I said, I, I know that Leviticus is not everyone's favorite place to read. So rather than me read through this entire chapter, I'm going to summarize for you because I, I get it. A lot of attempts to read through the Bible in a year die right about here <laughs> or when you get to numbers 
and I don't want you to, to fall asleep this morning in the sermon. So here in Leviticus, let me just let me give you the overview. What we have, of course, if you've tried to read through all of this, is a lot of details of the law of God being given to God's people in the Old Testament, the, the Israelite people, right? And so here in chapter 23, what follows from these first two verses is God telling Moses in, in pretty extensive detail, here's exactly what I want the, my people to do. I want them to observe this feast and have this festival at these particular times. I want it done in these ways to create sort of a rhythm of religious life for you as a nation. So the first thing God talks about here is the Sabbath day. God's people are told one day a week, every single week, is to be set aside for rest and for worship. No work is to be done. Everything that day is to be focused on the worship of God and resting in his trust of providing for them. And, and as hard as we think that is for us to fathom, there's no way we could, we could ever do that. We couldn't, we couldn't live like that. We've got so much to do. We're busy, right? Imagine living in a culture where you're eating what you are harvesting then, right? Like, like you're living in a culture where you don't have a refrigerator to store things up. You're living in a culture very dependent on a day's work, and God is saying, don't work one day every single week. Now, I can't dwell on this because this Sabbath command here actually is not just part of the ceremonial law, but part of the moral law, and it has some enduring application for us today, but, but to flesh that out would we'll take a whole sermon, and I want us to see these other things that God is prescribing here in Leviticus this morning. So, so I want to move beyond the Sabbath and the weekly thing that God is establishing to this series then of annual feasts and festivals that are to be kept at these various points all throughout the calendar year. And you've, you've heard of these, I'm sure. You've probably seen them when you're reading through your Bible. Even if you don't know all the details of what makes this one different than that one, you, you have some familiarity that they are required of the people in some way. And so here in Leviticus 23, what God tells Moses is he wants his people in the nation of Israel to observe seven different celebrations throughout the year, every single year. He, he says it begins with the Passover in the first month on the 14th day. Then they're to observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days straight, starting on the 15th day of that first month. And then the next one will be the Feast of the First Fruits, which is to take place the first day after the Sabbath, following the first harvest from the fields. And then there's the Feast of Weeks that takes place 50 days, seven Sabbaths plus one day from the Feast of First Fruits. And then there's the Feast of Trumpets, which will occur on the first day of the seventh month, and the Day of Atonement on the tenth day of the seventh month, followed by the Feast of Booths for eight days, starting on the fifteenth day of the seventh month. So that's kind of a summary of what, what he lays out in more detail throughout this passage there in chapter 23. And we're not going to go through all the details of those feasts and those festivals, because I want us to get to the point behind why God gave all these things to the people of Israel. At the end of chapter 23, the word celebrate shows up repeatedly in addressing how God wants these festivals, these holy convocations to be viewed by the people and practiced by the people. So understand that. What God's saying is, hey, here are all the things I want you to do, but he's not letting them off the hook by saying, if you just observe them and do them and kind of get yourself through them and drag yourself along, oh, another feast of the Lord, another festival to observe. He says, that's not the approach I want you to have. I want these to be times of celebration, times of rejoicing, times of excitement in your life. These feasts and these festivals were intentional times of celebration and worship meant to shape the life of God's people as a corporate body in the Old Testament. That, that's the purpose behind them. 
And one of the amazing things about them is just how many of them there are and how regular they are in the annual calendar, right? I just listed out when they're to start and how long they're to go for each of those. And the Israelite people, in observing these seven which were commanded of them, in addition to that, over time, developed other days that they would have feasts and festivals on as well. And they incorporated those into the, the Jewish calendar as well. And so for the Israelites, what this meant was, as the people of God, their religious practices began to create sort of the flow for the year. You would have this feast and this celebration, and then it would end, and you begin to prepare and look forward to the next one, and it would come, and then you would go on to the next one, right? And so they began to kind of mark their lives by these participations throughout the year. And in a lot of ways, while we may think those particular feasts and those festivals and those practices seem really kind of foreign to you and I, the concept is exactly the same in our society today. We still revolve our lives for a large part around feasts and festivals. We just don't call them that. We call them holidays, right? We start out every year with a New Year celebration, Kind of the big, all right, here we go, another year, right? And then we, we go on, and, and you get to Valentine's Day on February 14th. So that was, that was last Tuesday, husbands. And if you're playing the FedEx, UPS, uh, mails, running late thing, I'm, I probably need to go to town today and get your gift, okay? Uh, you can't play that card much longer. We're, we're, getting, we're getting long here. You got Valentine's Day, big holiday for, for right? And then you get to St. Patrick's Day, which apparently is a huge holiday for a lot of people. I did not realize quite how big St. Patrick's Day was um, for a lot of people broadly. I love this description of what St. Patrick's Day is. This is online. St. Patrick's Day commemorates St. Patrick and the arrival of Christianity in Ireland. Okay, I'm tracking with you so far. Celebrations generally involve public parades and festivals, parties, the wearing of green attire or shamrocks, and copious consumption of alcohol. That's the description for the holiday. So right, you can just imagine that get, how they got started, right? Okay, guys, uh, we need to celebrate the great missionary Patrick, his incredible work in the fifth century, uh, you know, bringing Christianity to Ireland, pushing back the paganism and the darkness of that culture. Uh, what, what do you think, guys? How should we celebrate that? Well, Bob? I think our celebration should involve copious amounts of alcohol. <laughs> okay. I don't know. I don't know. But alcohol sells huge on St. Patrick's Day, apparently. So you get past that holiday, and then you get to Easter. And Easter we think of as a Christian holiday, but it's actually a massive holiday, even for non-religious people. In fact, did you know more than $16 billion in sales occurs every year in the U.S. alone around Easter? I mean, you know, we're talking bunnies and eggs and candy, right? I mean, that's, that's, a, lot, that's a lot of money. And, and so that's a big holiday for a lot of people to celebrate. And then you get Mother's Day and you get Father's Day in the summer, and one of those has a, a much bigger significance than the other one. I'm not going to say any more about that. Um, we get to Independence Day on July 4th. That's a big thing here in the U.S., right? Again, billions and billions of dollars are spent to blow up in the sky, and we all say, woo, pretty, you know, and... Great. And then, you know, we, so we have these summer things, and then you get into the fall, we get to the end of October, and what do we come up to? <laughs> Reformation Day. Pagans talking about Halloween. <laughs> Failed. Man. Then, then, right from Reformation Day, Reformation Day onward... We get into the holiday sprint, right? It's Thanksgiving, and Thanksgiving doesn't even really end before it's, it's, it's Black Friday, and then it's Small Business Saturday, right? And then Cyber Monday, and maybe Giving Tuesday if you want to stretch it out all the way to there. And then you're right into the swing of Christmas. It's right around the corner, so we're shopping, shopping, shopping. We have Christmas, and then what's following just about a week later, it's another 
It's another new year, right? For us, this is, this is kind of the, the, the culture, the rhythm, the cycle built into our, our whole society revolving around feasts and festivals that we call holidays. And it's true of, of every culture. That's, that's just kind of what we do here in America, the biggest ones that we have note of. But every culture in various ways all around the world does the exact same thing. Now, if you go back to Leviticus here, you start to look at it that way. You say, okay, what God was doing here then was understanding how the human heart works, how human society works. And rather than just letting his people create their own celebrations, he gave to them this this pattern of celebration that he wanted them to follow. So it's this gift from God to shape their lives towards him instead of away from him through these celebrations, right? And what's interesting, though, is in Leviticus, you find 23, chapter 23 kind of filled up with all of this. But if you turn to just chapter 25, maybe turn the page or just look on the other column on your Bible there, you find God also gives some things in addition to the annual feasts that he wants his people to be mindful of. Leviticus 25, verses 1 to 5, say this. Yahweh spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to Yahweh. For six years you shall sow your fields, and for six years you shall prune your vineyards and gather its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to Yahweh. You shall not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of the undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. So here, in addition to the, the, the weekly rest, he takes that concept and then draws it out to stretch an entire year of Sabbath rest and celebration, particularly for the land, and says, this will be every seven years a special time for you to recognize and worship me as your provider. And the text goes on in Leviticus to say, well, you know, what are we going to eat if we don't harvest everything for a year? And he promises, I will provide a great crop for you so that you will be sustained through the seventh year and into the eighth year. And so he gives this promise, I'll provide for you. And so every seven years, I want you to spend a year worshiping and trusting and relying on me as a provider. Let the land rest. Don't cultivate, farm, or harvest like you will every other year in the six years. That's, that's a big deal. And just a few verses later there in Leviticus 25, we read this, starting in verse 8. You shall also count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that in the time of the seven weeks of years, you shall, the shall give you 49 years. So you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout your land. And you shall consecrate, listen to this, you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty to the land, of the land to all the inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property, each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you, and in it you shall neither sow, sow nor reap nor grow of itself, neither gather the grapes from the unjust vines, for it is a jubilee, and it shall be holy to you. This idea of a year of jubilee is that every 50 years, the cult of Israel is supposed to take the whole year and make it a year of special celebration. Agricultural rest is to occur, but also there is extra celebrations and worship services that should be done. There's a restoring and redeeming of sold land and property. There's the freeing of indentured servants during this time, and even the full forgiveness of debts that you owe to someone else or they owe to you. This big year of jubilee every 50 years is supposed to be a major year of worship. 
So if you take together all of just what we see here in Leviticus and don't even go into, into kind of the later history of Israel and how some of these other things develop there, what you find commanded by God at the start of the nation is a rhythm of celebration and worship of God that occurs weekly, that occurs annually, that occurs over a year length every seven years, and then a special year every 50 years. Okay, so the question is, great, what does seeing and knowing all of this from Leviticus have to do with us? How does this impact our lives? To be clear, as Christians, we need to understand that the particular feasts and festivals, just like the ritual sacrifices that are described throughout the book of Leviticus, commanded by God to the Israelite people, are not the ways we are to live our lives. Those are not binding on us. They're not to be continued today in the Christian life. So we're not going to go outside today and slaughter a bull as worship unto God. We're not going to blast any trumpets in here. We're not going to gather together and live in booths outside the church on the, the lawn out here for seven days as a festival unto God. We don't follow these things as the worship to God because we are not bound to the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. But it doesn't mean then that understanding what these things are and why they were given to Israel is completely irrelevant to us. In fact, I would argue understanding the point behind these things can help influence and shape our lives today, and it should. All of these things that were given by God as part of the ceremonial laws were always designed to point beyond themselves. They were never to become the thing that marked a person and made that person religious and acceptable in the sight of God based on how good they participated. That was never the point of them. They were always designed to find their fulfillment in Christ's life and ministry and to point people towards the fact that they needed someone to be perfect and keep everything perfectly because they themselves could not. The ceremonial law in and of itself was never, never the point. The New Testament makes clear you and I are not bound to the ceremonial laws, the civil laws of the Old Testament people of Israel. And some key texts that teach us that are texts like Romans 7, 6, which tells us, but we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit, not of the old way of the written code. Galatians 3, 24 and 25 tells us, so then our, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And Colossians 2, 16 and 17, makes the application clear with regards to the, to the festivals and things like that. Let, therefore, Paul writes, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Listen to this. These are a shadow of the things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. What the New Testament is telling us here is that all the ceremonial things, all the, the rhythms and the rituals and the feasts and the festivals, all of those things were designed to function like a shadow so that when you looked at them and you saw them, you would realize these are not the substance. They are the result of something greater causing them. So you would look upon them and then you would look up to the light of Christ. That's the point. He's the object we are to focus on. All of these things were designed to produce results in the people of God, like joy and gratitude and dependence and a responsive worship of God for his ongoing kindness and provision and care for his people. But Jesus teaches us and shows us and gives us all those things in a far better way than these shadows ever could. 
That's the thing I want us to get today, is all of the shadows are meant to point us to the substance of Christ. So when the people of Israel had a holiday celebration, when they participated in a feast and a festival, they weren't justified, they weren't made right before God because they went or followed the protocol that they were supposed to follow. They still needed a savior. They still needed forgiveness of sins. They still needed a redeemer. And now when you and I have the opportunity to have a holiday, to enjoy a feast, to to go to a festival, we're not justified by participation in those things. We need a savior. We need a redeemer. We need someone who can come in and save us from our sin. When, however, we go to those things and we enjoy them and we use them and we look upwards to Christ, we can find them to be very useful tools in our spiritual life. What God wants for you and I, when we think about all of these types of things, holidays and feasts and festivals and celebrations and things like that, is he wants us to look past the moments of merriment. He wants us to look past the the enjoyment that we get from the flavors of the food and, and past the receiving of rest on a day off from work. And he wants us to get our hearts and our minds focused upward to worship of Jesus in those times. The New Testament makes really clear that everything we do in our lives is to be done to the glory of God as an expression of worship. So so I've I've said this and pressed this on you for for years now, but hear it again. Worship is giving God praise and adoration and honor, and that's not just done through singing, right? Like, Like it's done, worship is done when we focus upon God and we hear him speak to us through a sermon like this. This is an act of worship here in our gathering. It's done when you and I speak to God in prayer, whether that's through prolonged prayer where we get in the altar here and we're, we're really pouring our heart out to God or the, the short prayer that we have when we're driving in our car going somewhere. Those are acts of worship as we focus and we speak to God. It's worship when you and I trust God and rely upon him in the difficult and hard situations of our lives. It's worship when we praise God for a good experience that we've had, for the enjoyment of a nice meal or a good drink, right? I have said many times before, some of my, my, my best moments of worship aren't just moments where my hands are lifted in a, in a great crowd of people singing. Some of my best, most genuine moments of worship are when I've been able to sit down and have a hot cup of tea and look out at the sun setting and drink that and enjoy that and enjoy what I'm seeing and say, praise God for that. Like, that's worship, right? We worship God when we obey his commands, when we abstain from evil, and when we live and pursue righteousness as he calls us to do. Worship is done anytime you and I put God first, when we put him above all the other things. So if you and I embrace enjoying holidays and seasons and events and activities as I think we should, but if we embrace doing all of that and we fail to see Christ and worship Christ through those things, then there's no spiritual benefit in them. But if you and I will embrace and take seriously using holidays and seasons and events and activities to stir up our affections, our love, and produce in us worship of Christ, then we can find those things to be very, very helpful tools. So here's what I want us to kind of take away this morning. What I want us to understand is that celebrations, whether that's in a special season or just through a special event or day, it gives us a chance to be intentional in worship. The Bible tells us so much about how worthy God is of our worship, of our adoration, and how you and I, we have an incredible privilege of getting to draw close to this incredible, amazing God who has made all things and give him worship that he finds acceptable. 
It is an incredible thing that you and I can do that because we, we're fallen, we're broken, we're easily distracted, we're full of sin and self-doubt, and yet God loves when we worship him through a song, through our simple trust, through a prayer. He loves, he delights in all of that. And so God gives us then all of these good gifts and all of these opportunities so that you and I would take advantage of them and learn to lean in to worshiping him. Everything that makes a celebration worth it can ultimately tra- be traced back to God and be a cause for us to give worship. James 1.17 tells us, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. 1 Timothy 4.4 says, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So then, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. These texts and many other texts like them tell us that everything in our lives, every opportunity you have to enjoy something and to, to cause you to celebrate and cause you to have, have a, a peace and excitement about something, those are all things that are designed for us to worship God in enjoying. Holidays and traditions and special events they all have profound impacts on our lives. They shape us in ways that, that we're not cognitively thinking about. They're just, that's the reality of what they do to us. So all of us in this room, we have memories about holidays from when we were growing up. Some of us have good memories of those things. Some of us have bad memories of those things. But those memories linger with you. Some of us have adopted habits and, and, and traditions from our families growing up, things that we liked. Some of us have created habits and traditions because we didn't like the things that we had growing up. But all of us are living out a result in our life today from how we were shaped and impacted by these things in our past. All of us can in here recall moments from special events, oftentimes with crystal clarity that goes far beyond how you can recall what you just did maybe two weeks ago, Right? Like right now, you can probably think of your wedding day and remember it a lot clearer than what you were doing a week ago Tuesday, right? You can think right now and remember some special birthday celebration like, you, like, like it was just yesterday. Like it was, you know, you could have been five, but you're like, man, I remember how awesome that was and this thing I got and so-and-so did this. Like that's, that's the way these works. We can remember when we won some, some big event, some, some activity we were in, when we got to see a favorite team play or a performer do something or we met a person that we greatly admired. Those things shape us, even though in the moment we're not thinking, I want this thing to be the, the shaping, defining moment of my life, right? It's just the way it works. And so God intended this. He intends for big moments of celebration, big moments of joy, big moments of excitement, and something outside of the ordinary to have a profound impact on your heart, which is why he tells his people, set apart time. Schedule your lives around special times of worshiping me. So that those big moments, which are so impactful on you, will draw you towards me. That's the point. That's what he wants us to do, is is not just to go and live our lives seeking experiences in general, not trying to repeat the things that we just found personally enjoyable in the past, but to recognize that in everything, the thing that makes something great, the things that makes it worth it, the things that make something really profound, all of it is just a shadow meant to cause us to look up to Christ and worship him. So when you see something that's, that's really engaging to you, something that you really like, something that you really want to pursue with your life, understand today, that thing, it's just a shadow. God put it there so that you would turn your eyes past that to the source of light that is casting that shadow.
in front of you. God wants us to seize upon opportunities to celebrate and to enjoy and to use those things to proclaim God's goodness, both to ourselves and to others around us. So, so this, is my, this is my argument today of how these things in Leviticus, chapter 23 and 25, how understanding those ceremonial things that, that are not binding on us today in the way they were upon Israel, how do those things give us instruction in 2023 for this year of our lives? Here's my, here's my argument in two parts. God's people in the Old Testament were called to set aside times and seasons for special focus upon the worship of God. Second, I believe this, God's people in the New Testament have even more reason to rejoice, to celebrate, and to worship God because of the salvation we have found in Christ. The New Testament frees us up from all the rituals and all the routines of the ceremonial law, but it doesn't get us past the point of why God gave those to his people in the Old Testament. You and I, we we should understand, we should prioritize and pursue worship of God as supreme in our lives. That's what this was meant to do in the Old Testament. This is what we are meant to do living post-New Testament. In fact, think about a text like this. Romans 11, 33 through 12, 1 says this. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever amen and then this is what paul says so i appeal to you therefore my brothers by the mercies of god to present your lives as living sacrifice holy and acceptable to god which is your spiritual Worship. What's he say? In light of everything that God does, in light of everything that, that God has done for you, in light of, of who God is, you should worship. Not, you should give a few days out of your calendar following the feasts and festivals that God has prescribed. In the he says, no, no, you should give your lives, every bit of you, every breath, every moment, every day, all you should give all of that as worship to God because that's true, acceptable, spiritual worship. That's what he says. He, he doesn't re- reduce it and roll it back and say, hey, hey, God freed us from the rituals of the Old Testament, so you don't need to worry about it. Don't have any times of special celebration and worship. He says, in light of everything you know about God, you should give more. You should do more. You should be more focused, more motivated, Right? How can our calling to worship God's Christians be less than the calling our Old Testament forebears had? Our grounding for worship is so much greater than what they had. You and I have this massive gift of knowing the mercies of God that have come to us through Jesus Christ, who came and lived and died so that our sins could be taken away from us, be placed on him. He's the one who atoned for every wrong that you and I have ever done by his sacrificial death. We're here today knowing the mercies of God can be seen in the fact that Jesus Christ died and then rose again, proving he's conquered death and the grave and assuring us that his promise of eternal life is true and will come to pass for us. You and I, we get to be set free from the routines and the rituals and the shadows of the Old Testament because we see clearly the light of Christ, and that should be far more motivating to us than any tradition and any calendar schedule could ever be. Here's what Christ has done for us. Here's, here's what he's given to us, all the benefits that you and I have if we are one of his people. I want you to let the power of these words stir up your motivation to worship. In Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forward in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So my argument is very simple. My conviction is this. You and I, as Christians, we have a much deeper motivation for worship than just mere ritual. So, yes, we are absolutely freed up from the ceremonial requirements of the feasts and festivals every year. But if the people of God in the Old Testament would give that much in the worship of God, that much attention, that much, that much focus in their lives to the worship of God, how much more should those of us who live in the light of Christ give in our worship of him? So as we think about the, the hundred-year anniversary there's, there's absolutely no text in, in the Bible, been through it front to back, that would tell us, here's how you celebrate that as a church. Here's, here's the protocol. Here's what you need to do. But what I do believe is that if God would call for celebrations in the life of his people in the Old Testament, to, to specifically celebrate not just annual things, but then to say, hey, every seven years I want a special worship and celebration for the fact that I've provided food for you from the fields. And if God would call for a year-long celebration to take place as this year of jubilee every 50 years to, to remind the people, hey, I, I redeemed you from Egypt. I set you free physically. I gave you an earthly inheritance. I, I have granted you material, monetary blessing. I want you to remember all of that every 50 years. Spend a year worshiping me for those things. Then I think how much more rightly should we celebrate the fact that for 100 years... God has been at work redeeming his people, not just from slavery physically, but from sin. And that God has been setting people free, not just from physical bondage, but spiritual bondage and darkness. That God has been providing true hope and eternal life to people. And he's been using this assembly. He's been using us as part of this place, this small outpost of his kingdom, to proclaim the great glory of Christ and his gospel here in northeast Missouri and even all around the world through our investments in missionaries and the works that they're doing. My belief is, is quite simple, and I hope you'll share in this conviction and then gain the motivation, the excitement that, that you should have, that I have for this upcoming year in light of who Jesus is. And all that he has done in and through us, we have every reason, I believe, to celebrate his work through the last 100 years of this church. That's why I want to make 2023 a year to celebrate.
Not because of us. Not because of what we have accomplished. Not because of what we have built or what we have here. Because of what Jesus has been doing and how he's been using us. That's worth celebrating. So worship team, if, you, if you'll come and prepare to lead us in our, our final song, I want to just take a few moments to respond to the word of the Lord and to, to, to lift our eyes up to the light of Christ today. I want us to reflect on who he is, that that passage in Ephesians 1. Maybe if you grab your Bible and you flip over to that, that could guide your prayer and your response right now. Maybe you can think about what he has done broadly to bring salvation to his people. Yes, or maybe in this time of response, you'll just slow down and think specifically, what is it that you have seen God do for you? What have you seen God do for the communities around us through here, through this place? Let's take a few moments to respond to God and to worship him and to to give him the praise and the glory that he most certainly deserves for the things that he has done.